Our scripture for today is John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up the mountain, and he, there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said, to, he said this to test him, for he himself knew that he would do. Philip answered him, 200, den- 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of these disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five bar- barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many? Jesus said to him, Have, have, the, pe- have the people sit down. Now there is... Now there is much grass. Jesus said, have the people in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were eaten their fill, he told them, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left of those that was eaten. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then, then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the aspects is I've just been thinking about Mother's Day, and, and Jody and Scott, I appreciate how you guys led us into that moment too, is it feels like parenting, it feels like uh, being a father, being a mother, Life in general, to me, feels like it has like great hopes, so many great hopes in life, and then it seems like the other side of the coin is great limitations, like great hopes, great limitations. Like parenting, I feel like is in the realm of great hopes and great limits. Like like we we, we hope to be able to have kids. We hope that they'll be healthy. We, we, we just hope that our kids would even like stand on our shoulders. Like Patty and I say this to our kids sometimes. We're like, we hope that you guys just go so much further than us. Like we hope that you stand on our shoulders in a way that you can reach heights that we couldn't reach. And as that even relates to their, worship, their, their relationship with Jesus, we're like, man, we, we hope that our kids would be sold out for Jesus. And in the midst of these great hopes, we experience great limits, great limitations. Uh, 16 years ago, as, as Hannah, we were expecting our first Hannah. I remember I was, I was a computer programmer in, in Texas, and this lady who was in the office with us had just had their first child. And I remember she just came up to me one day with like, like a mission in her eyes. And she was like, Tim, go home right now. She said, she said, go home right now, take the day off and just sleep all day. Just go home and sleep. You're going to need it. You know, and she looked really frazzled. And I just remember thinking like, like, what, what are you talking? I'm not going to go home. And so, you know, I think I told Tanner that I was like, I was like, Tanner, just, just take a nap, man. You're going to need it later, you know, and stuff. But you know, we're, there, there are these incredible hopes, and then there are these incredible limitations that we feel. And 
I've even wondered, you know, the state of Iowa has an incredible 529 college savings program, like a pre-tax thing, and, and it works for like any education. So we've started like getting into like a savings for our kids for, uh, for college and, and future schooling and stuff like that. And it's like struck me, should we also start a fund for future counseling for our kids? You know, just to be like, man, we're doing our best here, but I know we're messing you up too. I'm so sorry. Like, we, we are really limited people. We're, we're trying our best, but we're starting a, a savings account just so you guys can have counseling in the future uh, because I know that you're going to be upset with me about all the things that I wanted to do but I didn't do or my, my heart was desiring to do and I'm a very limited person. You know, even when Jesus told the disciples, like, can you just stay awake just tonight? You know, and they couldn't. And I relate to that like crazy. And uh, we have great hopes. We have great limitations. And I feel like where we're going today in John chapter 6 is that Jesus stands so clearly and Jesus stands so powerfully, I feel like, at the intersection of our greatest hopes and our greatest limitations. Like that's, that's where we find him. And we, we find him there in John chapter 6. I think we hopefully find him there with our lives. Is that that place where our greatest hopes and our greatest limitations meet is, is a powerful place where Jesus is, is sitting there waiting for us and, and waiting to meet with us there. So, so John chapter 6, we have, uh, we have some Bibles over here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please just take it. It's yours. Uh, we also have things that are called scripture journals. And so what that is, it's just the book of John. You might have a really fancy Bible and you don't want to mark in and underline, write notes in the margins. And so our scripture journals are designed for that. It's every other page is blank. And you can, we're going to be in the book of John for like 10 more years. It feels, we won't, we're actually making really good progress, but there's plenty of the book of John left. We're only at chapter six. And so you can grab one of those. You can even grab a stack of them if you want to take coworkers or friends through the book of John or have them start reading it. But then we'll have, we'll have the passages on the screen too. So we're at John chapter 6, and just those numbers 6, 1, or something like that just means it's, it's the, the, the Bible was never originally numbered. It was actually some dude that was riding a horse decided one day to put numbers to all the chapters and verses, and, and so he did. It was actually one guy, and the church was just like, yeah, that works. We'll go with that. And so, so they used to just be like, oh, you know, the middle part of the book of John or whatever it may be. Um, and so 6 just means chapter 6, and then 1 just means the first verse, so the, every verse is numbered in there. So John 6, starting at verse 1, says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
Um, so the, the scene, if it, it's, a, it's a common thing that John is doing is when he, when he kind of resets and he's, he's taking us in a new area. The whole theme of the book is so that we would believe Jesus and follow him and love him. Um, so he is purposely leading us down that road of, of hopefully a road towards Jesus in our lives, fully devoted to him. And he, he starts with setting time and place, which kind of is like a act two, act three, act four. And so he's done this again to give us a setting. We're in the, the northern part of Israel, the Sea of Galilee. We're on, most of the population at that time was on the northwestern shore. And so you had, you had a city, you had Capernaum, you had Cana was right there. They're kind of like suburbs. They're next to each other around the Sea of Galilee. Um, so Cana was the wedding where he, where he performed the miracle. And the Sea of Galilee, just for context, I, was, I, like, I, I found like the, the land mass, like square mile area of the Sea of Galilee. And I just started looking at lakes in Iowa to say like, okay, what is comparable? And roughly we're talking about Red Rock, like Lake Red Rock is kind of like the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, it's more of just like a circle, but so it doesn't have all these arms and stuff that Red Rock has, but it's kind of a Red Rock type area. So verse one tells us that Jesus has passed to the other side. And what this more than likely means is that he went from the northwest area to the northeast area. So he kind of crossed through the northern tip. So now he's on the eastern side, and that area today is known as the Golan Heights. And so it's, it's a really large, today, really large grassy area where you could have a whole lot of people there. Um, I actually, many years ago, was able to spend a month in Israel, and I took this picture from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee facing west. So this potentially is kind of like a vantage point that you can get, like, this is, this is what it looks like. It's stunningly beautiful there. And, and this, is, this is where this is happening. So a large crowd is now following Jesus. And we learn later in this passage that there are 5,000 men is what, what the number was, about 5,000 men. And it was common during this time that that's just how the Roman Empire did crowd-sized numbers. So they did crowd-sized numbers, maybe because they felt like they couldn't see every kid in a crowd. So they usually just said, here's how many men were there. And then you could kind of guess and extrapolate from there. So there's a really good chance that we're talking 10 to 20,000 people are a part of this, of this group. And um, verse 2 tells us why they are following him. Verse 2 says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So you have potentially 20,000 people that have heard or been close enough to someone who has been radically changed by Jesus miraculously that now there's about 20,000 people, five to 20,000 people following him. There's a good chance that they're looking to Jesus to improve their lives. There's a good chance they're looking to Jesus to improve their lives, maybe not rule their lives. We've seen that in the book of John. Jesus questions people sometimes. Are you just looking to me to level you up? improve your life, or are you looking to me to rule your life? Those are different things, and the difference is very important. So, so uh, we know that there is this huge crowd there. It's good they're looking to Jesus to improve their life. That's not a bad thing. It's just that there are better things. Um, there, there are more important things, which would be looking to Jesus to actually have your life, because he then gives us eternal life from that. But the group is there, and then Jesus withdraws from the crowd to sit down with the disciples. 
Jesus does this frequently. He's with people. He withdraws. In community groups, we talked about this a lot last week of what it looks like to withdraw. And then because you've withdrawn, then what it looks like to engage. And so he's withdrawing to be with his disciples. And we're told, this is a huge point, is we're told that it is the time of the Passover. So it's a holiday. It's holiday season in Israel this time. It's the time of the Passover. Experiencing the Passover for a person at this time in Israel would be kind of like us at the 4th of July. So, I mean, it's just the atmosphere is just ripe with freedom. And, you know, you're listening to that Lee Greenwood song and, and like you're just, you're really owning freedom at this time. And for the Jews, there was no greater 4th of July than Passover. Because for the Jewish people, for 400 years, 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. So from the death of Joseph until the time Moses came, they were slaves in Egypt. And God's people during that time, imagine how many generations would pass for 400 years. Like, I mean, we're talking, like if it was us today, way before Iowa was even a state, it'd be like, yeah, we've, we've, you know, what did your do for a living, do for a living, do for a living, do for a living, do for a living. Slave, 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 slave. Like that's all we've ever done. We don't even ask the question anymore. There's no, we've all been slaves, every one of us, for generate 400 years. It had been that long since they had felt freedom. It had been that long since they had felt God's presence working in their lives at that type of feeling freedom. Then through Moses, God instructs the Israelites to slaughter a lamb. So he instructs them, slaughter a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over your house. Put it over the doorway of your house. And if you put the, the blood of the lamb over your home, then the angel of death will pass over your family. And that's where Passover, that term comes, okay? Then he leads two million people, is the estimate, through the Red Sea on dry ground. These people live for decades because of their sin. They live for decades in a desert, and there's no hope for water. There's no hope for food. You get desperate pretty fast when there are a couple million people, and there's no water or food. And God miraculously, from heaven, supernaturally keeps them alive by giving them bread from heaven. Manna. Manna is what they call it. Bread from heaven. So God keeps them alive. So what the holiday of Passover is celebrating all of this. Okay? Like, they've actually got a, us one-upped on our 4th of July story. <laughs> like, they really do. I mean, we, we our freedom is amazing their freedom was amazing, and, and they even would celebrate it every year for millennium. And so one of the things that's amazing here is during the holiday of Passover, this large crowd is around Jesus and the disciples. Then I love how Jesus brings up the question. Jesus breaks the ice here, looking at this crowd of maybe 20,000 people, and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? There is no reason that Jesus should feel responsible for their welfare. He didn't organize this. He wasn't, you know, canvassing the neighborhood, making sure everybody knew when they were supposed to come out and meet with he, he did. He did not do anything to get this crowd of people there, and he takes the initiative to care about them to the point of, I think they're hungry. 
They've walked a little ways to get here. There's no food trucks out here. I think they're going to be hungry. And what I love here is we see that, that Jesus, is, he's, a, he's a good king. Um, he's not known as a king at this time, but he's a good king. He's the great shepherd. He calls himself the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He cares. I think if it was us, we'd be like enamored with just logistics and be like, hey, it's their fault. They should have all brought food, you know. And they just weren't thinking about that. They were just thinking about Jesus. They come out. And so he asked Philip how they should feed him. And I love how verse 6 tells us, Jesus said this to Philip in order to test him. Jesus wants to find out what Philip is thinking. Um, I don't know if he's kind of half smiling when he asks him this. It doesn't seem like he is because they're taking this really seriously. And Jesus already knows what he's going to do. It's an impossible task in Philip's mind to feed these people. And I love seeing here that, that even here we see the intersection of great hope, 20,000 people rushing out to meet Jesus, and then great limitation. I feel like I'm going to pass out. Uh, like, I, I want to be here, but I, I feel sick. You know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, I'm hot. And in the midst of this impossible task... Philip's response is basically, on a good day, a person could earn one denarii of money. On a good day, you could earn one denarii. So what Philip is mentioning here basically is, I would have to work and get paid full price, and I'd have to work for about eight months to buy enough food just to give everybody an appetizer, not even the full course. Just to give everybody a bite, I would have to work for eight months. And what, what I love here is true about Jesus. And as, whenever we read scripture, it should be like, okay, what is true of Jesus in a way that is true today? It was true 200 years ago in France. It will always be true. And it's always true here, and we see it on the ground that day, is that Jesus is at ease with impossible situations. Just across the board. Jesus is at ease with impossible situations. Like even in my parenting, for me to be so present and at ease in a moment that like my kids come up to me all freaked out and I'm like, and I'm like so present that I'm like, hey, this is a good teachable moment. I'm going to, uh, you know, like I'm not freaking out. I'm just like, yeah, this is a, hey, uh, what would you do in this situation, young man? You know, like I'm just not there. I'm usually swept up in the moment, you know. But for Jesus to be so at ease in the midst of an impossible situation that he even, hey, Philip, what do you think we should do? Before Philip even has the question, Jesus knows how he's going to feed these thousands of people because he cares about them. He cares about Philip. He's not like, well, Philip, this is your problem. No, he's just wondering to know what Philip's heart is here. Jesus is at ease. He is already several moves ahead on the chessboard. He's already several moves ahead. We think it's going to freak out Jesus. He's already, he's already several moves ahead of us. What's impossible for us is possible for him. I think another way to think about it is our limits don't limit him. Our limits don't limit him. We see it play out in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. It's fascinating here how Andrew brings up the boy. And I would have loved to have been there to see how this plays out. Is Andrew wondering, is Jesus up to something? You know, it's ridiculous for Andrew to be like, well, a boy here has five loaves of bread, two fish, do fish sandwiches. But it's like, are you, is that like just for us? <laughs> you know, and everybody, like we're going to steal the food from the boy and maybe we'll give him like half a sandwich and then we've got enough for a few people and Bob's your uncle. You know, like how is he processing this? You know, how is he thinking about it? Is Andrew maybe just stating the facts? All I know is there's one kid who brought some bread, you know, which is a testament to his mom, of course. Like, there's no way, like, that was his mom being like, hey, you're, you're leaving the house, take this. Um, he mentions that, but then Andrew brings up, but what are they for so many? You know, at first I was like, man, Andrew was the only one that had a lot of faith in the moment. He knew Jesus was there. But it's like, well, I don't know. You know, we'll find out one day maybe how Andrew was processing this moment. Um, but then what we do know is that Jesus then issues a command. It is time. He says, have the people sit down. I, love, I mean, even that, like Psalm 23, like he, he, he leads us and he, he has us actually sit down in green pastures, you know, and, and we see the great shepherd working here. Have the people sit down. There's a lot of grass here. It's comfortable. Everybody sits down. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Well, there were 12 disciples. So he had each disciple get a basket, probably a big, big basket, and they're Filled, them, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus simply takes the bread. He, give thanks to, he gives thanks to God. And then he shares the bread with all those who are seated. He lets his disciples be a part of this. He gives the fish also as much as they wanted. I love that. I love that detail. Philip had brought up the exorbitant money it would take just to give somebody an appetizer. Philip's like, hey, if we're just going to keep people alive here, take eight months of work just to give people a bite. Jesus has given them as much as they wanted. The disciples, I think, are taught a huge lesson as the disciples are the hands and the feet of Jesus in this moment as they're passing out everything. And I think we're taught a huge lesson by Jesus that day. And then Jesus even has them collect the leftovers. I mean, you can imagine that Philip goes from here to now he's, he's like probably struggling to carry a basket. And he had to have marveled, marveled. You know, Jesus wasn't like, sit over there, guys. Let me teach you a lesson. He had them actually like with their, their, their smell, with their sight, with their strength, actually sense and marvel at Jesus. And I think a huge lesson they were learning, and I think a huge lesson for us, is that Jesus is lavishly generous. That, that's like who he is. That even in a moment like this, he is way more generous than he needs to be. 
He's lavishing people with his generosity. He is at ease with the impossible, and Jesus is lavishly generous. And I hope that the people that day, which I know they were because I, we know how John wrote this, is that they're starting to connect some things. It's not just that their stomachs are full. I think they're starting to be like, oh, I know what's happening here. Oh, gosh, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to see what he is teaching me. And do you see it? When God led his people out of slavery from Egypt, when God led his people out of slavery, the Passover, there were seas of people that were outside in the middle of nowhere. And they didn't know how they were going to survive. They had no chance for food. And straight from heaven, he gives them bread. He gives them manna. Jesus has just told us in chapter 5 that Moses is pointing to him. Remember, he says the Father, miracles, John the Baptist, Scripture, and Moses. If you think you're following any of those, you will be giving your life to Jesus because Moses is pointing to Jesus and saying, everything that you have read that I wrote, I am ultimately saying he is the one that didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He tells us later. And so here we have, during the Passover, that Jesus is teaching us that he came to save us from something far greater than slavery in Egypt. He came to save us from being slaves to sin that would forever separate us from God. A people that were condemned and he says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And now he is miraculously feeding a whole crowd of people during Passover manna, bread from heaven. And remember how they walked across the sea as if it was dry ground, or they walked through the seas as if it was dry? The next passage is Jesus walking on water. And then the next section is him saying, I am the bread of life. So Jesus is saying, I am the blood that goes above the doorway, that if you place his blood on your family, you have everlasting life, and the angel of death passes over you. He's like, I am the Passover lamb, I am the bread of life, I am the exodus, and I am delivering you all out of slavery so that you can experience true freedom. And this is all happening by him giving dinner to a group of people and having their eyes open to the reality that, um, that everything he is doing is not hiding in the dark. It is stepping in the light and inviting us to him through a well-lit path. And yeah, amen, man. It's so good. It is so true. Um, it, it's amazing. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. They get it. Like if, if we're wondering, hey, are they getting all this? Or are they just like, the guy makes good bread. No, like they're getting it, that, that he is the prophet who's to come into the world. Then look where they go with verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people rightly elevate Jesus. They acknowledge Jesus as the prophesied Messiah. The prophet has come. The anointed one has come. The one that we have been looking to come into the world has come. 
He's indeed come into the world, but then their view of Jesus gets too small. In the same way that Moses led them out of slavery into freedom, on their 4th of July, they say, he's going to free us from the Romans. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And our lives tomorrow are going to be good because we're going to have this as our king. And he's going to kill it. He's going to be an incredible king for us. And so, gosh, man, he's our president. He's our king. He will give us political freedom. And Jesus perceives that they're about to make him king of Israel. So he slides away. He's like, I'm out of here. Jesus is about far more than him being a great president. He, his mission that he's on, for him to let them make him king, is way too small. You know, for us on like Mother's Day, if you're ever like, hey, your kid's going to be president. I mean, hopefully that would make us happy, right? It's like, awesome. Let's be really engaged in discipleship. Let's like really pour into them. This is incredible. They're going to be president. That's like as high as you can get in our country. Or they're going to be king. That's as high as you can get. And for Jesus, that's too low for him. He's like, no, you don't want me king. I am on a mission that is far greater than being king. I am, I am king of kings. I am not coming to improve your political environment. I'm not coming to improve your country. I'm coming to save the world. I'm coming to redeem the world. I'm coming to draw people out of a lifetime of slavery, generations of slavery to sin. I am the bread of life. I am the Passover lamb. Whoever look to me have eternal life. I'm not going to let you make me king because I am, I, I am on a mission that is greater than that so that I can be the king of kings, that I can be your savior. So I think a big lesson from Jesus' heart here in slipping away from verse 15, it's true now, it's very simple, is that Jesus is way more than a king. Might sound like really simple, but man, like if that would actually like take root in every one of our hearts, like, like to truly, you know, we get to walk with one that would be far greater than any, like if Abraham Lincoln was ever like, hey, I've come back to life, and can we be buddies? And can we just be friends? Can we be hunting partners? Can we be all these things? You know, it'd be like, gosh, amazing. That would be incredible. And we have, Jesus is way more than a king and calls us brothers and sisters. We don't just like Jesus because he could lead us to a better country. We worship him because our soul has no hope apart from him. He is our forever king, our forever Lord, our forever Passover, applying his blood to our life, the penalty of sin, eternal death, hell passes over our life. Our Lord becomes the bread of life. He tells us we now have eternal life, and it's unextinguishable life. And I think, like, what does that mean for us today? What do we do with this? One honest question, I think, for everybody in this room is, is Jesus at the place of your greatest hopes and your greatest limits, your greatest limitations. You know, I think we all like hope for greatness and then we all feel our earthiness. And don't look to him to improve our lives. Don't make him a little king to make little adjustments in your life. Would we be a people, would we be a community that look to him to be savior of our lives, to rule our lives, 
to be improving our lives beyond our wildest dreams because he's forming us into the likeness of Jesus. And what is happening is we're looking more like him and we're, we're living out how we were designed to live, which is be, uh, be free in him and not be slaves to sin. And he doesn't do this 50%. He didn't give these people a little bit of bread that he lavishes us with more than we could handle with, 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 our, with our fill. He encourages everyone to be fully satisfied in him. And that's just a picture of how he works and how he saves. And if Jesus is not currently your savior, I would really encourage you to, to come home running to him. Give your life to him. You, you will be set free. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk down the aisle. Uh, you don't have to like memorize some amazing prayer. I had a guy ask me the other day, like, do I need to read the entire Bible before I come to him? Because I want to, you know, like, what do I need to do? Man, he did all of the hard work. He did all of the heavy lifting so that what you can do is just say, I'm yours. That's it. Like, I'm yours. Believe that in your heart, you're saved. And it's the only prayer that Jesus guarantees to answer the second it's answered. That's it. It's the only prayer I know of that he says, if you ever pray this, it's a yes instantly. And that's whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, embrace him as your savior. For those of us who, are, who walked in the door with Jesus as our savior, man, I can only imagine the marvel that his disciples felt as they were gathering up all those pieces left over and just been like, man, we've been walking with him for a while. And this is one of the first miracles that he includes everybody in. All the disciples are a part of seeing this happen. And man, that's what I want for us. I want us to, Mark Huntrads has talked about this a few times, that like awe has struck every soul, as Acts 2 tells us. And it's like, man, would we marvel at what Jesus is doing in our lives, what he's doing in our midst as he uses us as his hands and feet. So, so is Jesus at the place of our greatest hopes and our greatest limitations or our greatest fears, our greatest struggles, our greatest anxieties? And then a second question for us is, will you bring your five loaves and two fish to Jesus? I mean, imagine that boy watching all this play out. Coming home and be like, Mom, sorry, no more bread left over. You said bring home the leftovers. But let me tell you what Jesus did with just a little bit that we had and how he made that. Just Jesus doesn't ask us to feed thousands of people. Jesus doesn't ask. It's not our job to feed thousands of people. It's our role to bring our five loaves and two fish and see what Jesus does. See what Jesus does. In the face of thousands, five loaves and two fish is embarrassing small resources. It's an embarrassing small resources if we walk to thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, unless Jesus is a part of the equation. If Jesus is a part of the equation with our five loaves and two fish, then that's, that's enough to feed an army. That's enough to face whatever he calls us to face in our lives. It's enough to face whatever armies are out there, our five loaves and two fish would, would be plenty for him. And I think the question is, I think sometimes we, we hide ourselves with those five. Two. It's like, man, I really don't have a lot to offer. I'm going to kind of go over here and hide in the corner. And it's like, well, none of us really have a lot to offer. But if Jesus is a part of the equation, we, we have plenty. <laughs> we, we have anything that he would call us to walk into. Jesus is the place where our greatest longings and our great limits meet. 
Our limits are met with his unlimited power. Our longings are met with his presence, his peaceful presence in our lives. The kids are just sensing the beauty of that. Um, man, I, I do hope that our hearts scream like that as we, as we feast on these treasures of who he is, who he is for us. Can I pray for us so that the Lord would show us this? Lord, I do thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us. Uh, these are written so that we would believe what we believe. And uh, Lord, I ask that you would give us grace and power in our community groups this week as we, as we put flesh on all of this, of what this means for our lives. If we're not a part of a group, um, Lord, would you just give us creativity to be able to make that happen? Would even leaders maybe after the service just randomly bump into and invite people? And would that become an amazing part of what, what it looks like for us to walk with you here. Lord, thank you that our kids are screaming. Um, Lord, I pray that, that in the depths of their hearts that they would absolutely delight in you. You tell us that if we don't praise you, the rocks will cry out. Would our kids praise you? Would we praise you with our life? Thank you that every word that we covered today was not true because I said it in a slick way because I know I didn't, Lord. It's true because it, because it came from you and because you are true. And would you empower the word that you placed in us today? Show us what it looks like for us to live this out. Jesus, in your name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. A beautiful thing that was Jesus's idea is, is he gave us communion to actually commune with him. He said, you guys take this together. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. I will be in the room with you. He's in the room with us. His presence is in the room with us. And then he said, face to face, we will take this when we're together face to face. But now as we are in the far country and he is at home, we take this in remembrance of him. Uh, so it's wine and juice. Obey your conscience there. Uh, then it's a cup within a cup. So just grab one cup. The bread is underneath. You can separate the cups. So warnings in scripture is if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, don't rush to the table. Give the Lord room to reveal things to you. Um, talk to him about things. Maybe he needs to encourage you in things. Um, but uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, um, come to the table. Don't rush to the table, but come to the table. Um, if you are not a follower of Jesus, what I encourage you is instead of coming here, come to Jesus. Give your life to him. Love to talk with you about that. But uh, let's spend some time, and uh, then let's come. The way that we'll do it is we'll uh, take the elements, and then we'll remain standing, and we'll take it together as family. So let's respond to him.